led Cal to its fourth NCAA title. He's a USA Water Polo Hall of Famer, three-time All-American at Cal himself, the 1988 Player of the Year, an Olympian in 1992 and 1996. He's pretty good. Like, this guy's pretty good. This is Kirk Everest, head coach at the University of California, Berkeley, NCAA championship. Champion. How does that sound, coach? Sounds great. It's a good way to end 2021. Yeah, you're not getting tired uh, of it now? Excited. No, no, no. You never, you never get tired of it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, and uh, it's important to, to celebrate those, those milestones and all the hard work that these guys uh, put in. As you should remind me about how many titles now for Cal overall. This is your fourth, but uh, there are plenty before that. Yeah, fifteen. So oh, uh, uh, going back to the seventies and. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be involved in six of them, two as a player and now four as a coach. So, um, it's a great tradition, uh, at Cal for water polo. And, uh, and we are happy to, to continue in our way to, to try to maintain that tradition. As you have, let's, let's just talk about this season. Um, and I wanted to get right into it. You know, you went to MPSF championships, you'd had a very good season. There's no question about that. And then lost twice. And here's what I'm curious about is uh, obviously MPSF is not the same thing as NCAAs, but you might think that having lost twice in MPSF, that your, your attitude toward NCAAs would be different. What was it about those two losses that contributed to the huge success that you had at NCAAs, if anything? I, I think you have a, a, there's a fear of just how the team reacts to the two losses because uh, we'd had a good run um, throughout the season. And so you're looking at, you know, are they down? Do they, uh, are they, uh, you know, are they questioning where they are in the, in the scope of things? Um, you know, we were fairly comfortable going into the conference tournament that we were, we had secured a bid into NC2As regardless of what happened. Um, but you, you know, your, your, uh, your competitiveness, you, you know, we didn't want to take two losses in, in two days and, and, um, you know, that, that can wear on the confidence of the players. So, you know, that was the, the main fear of just how were we going to react to it? We had reacted fairly well to losses throughout the year. Um, but, uh, you know, it took a little bit of time. The, the quality of those games, the physicality of those games also adds on to it. The guys are tired. Guys are beat up. Um, the season's, you know, wearing on. And, and to get through it is, is a mental challenge as well as a physical one. So um, just monitoring how they were. The first few days after the tournament were a little slow and sluggish, and they just kind of slowly – built that energy up and and we're we're hitting on all cylinders the week after leading into the nc2a's i felt like okay mentally they're in a good spot does the slow and sluggish part concern you when it's happening and you you do you have any worry that this might be the state of uh, their emotions up until the tournament uh yeah i think you do um and you're trying to talk to players and just get them around the concept of you know some of the things we did training wise uh, you know, it's, it's not a sport like swimming where you're tapering, um, but you're, you're, you know, you're, you're backing off a little bit here and there because of this, again, the amount of games to play two games like that in two days is hard. Um, and so, you know, talking to them about the things that we were doing and, and that we, you know, we, we trained right up to it hard. 
um, and that might be a differentiator in a in a one goal game. Um, we didn't get some of the bounces that we might have you know liked um, in the in the conference tournament. Um, and in our conference, everything can flip on its head in a day. It, it's it's you know you 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 win four in a row and then you lose four in a row. It, it's all so close that um, you know we knew what we were getting ourselves into. And again, talking to them about we, you know, we're, we know what we're, these games are going to be like, we know what, you know, that it's going to be a one goal game here, a one goal game there. And sometimes you're going to end up on the wrong end of it. And, and the next game is going to be exactly the same. It's just, you know, can we flip that switch and, and, uh, and flip the script on the game? And we have to be mentally ready to do that. Speaking of one goal game, so the final against USC 13 to 12 and, but the, the semi against UCLA, went to overtime and then you pulled it out 15 to 13. I'm curious about when you and or your team look back on those games. Is it actually does it make a difference or is it even more rewarding when you have such success and it's done in sort of a close manner? It's like it's a very very competitive match. Yeah, I think we all take great pride in our conference and the in the and the competitiveness of it and uh and when you are able to win a championship or win a game against the quality of players like UCLA, like USC, like Stanford. Um, it means, it means a great deal to us. Uh, there's again, a, a tremendous amount of competition between the players, between the coaches, between the programs. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of respect for what these teams bring to the table and, and, you know, and, and the, the, the effort that it takes, to get a win in those games is extraordinary and uh, mental focus, physical focus, uh, a little bit of luck here or there. Um, you know, it's an inch. It's, it's really is, it's really fine line and, and you can watch the videos of the games and it's, I'm sure as, as on coaches on both sides, you look and go, Oh my, you know, just this much, Yep. you know? And, and so, and we're, and we're used to it. We kind of just, it, you show up and you're like, it's going to be a one goal game no matter what. Um, I think with UCLA, since the since the shortened COVID season, I want to say of the eight games we I think we played eight times or seven times at least, and I and I think only the game that was at Cal, um, the last game of the season, which was a complete anomaly, um, we've gone to overtime every single time. So it's it's just you know you just kind of look down the the deck at Adam and his players and go all right here we go again. Um, this is the way it's going to be. And every time we would score, they would score. Every time they'd go ahead by a goal, we'd find a way to score a goal. And it's like, you just can't get rid of, you can't get rid of these guys and you're going to have to take it. You know, it's a, it's a 15 round title fight and somebody's going to have to knock somebody out because um, they're not going down. I know those of us who are involved in the sport. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, that these dog fights are going to happen. Do you wish they I don't know if you have the personality type before a game where you think, man, I wish we could just win this game by 10 and then I, I wouldn't have to stress out about it. I don't know if that's your personality <laughs> type. No, I think, again, we, we, we know what we're getting ourselves into with those games and they're going to be tight. Um, you know, when you get, we had a game, like I said, that last game at the end of the season, uh, we, we had changed the schedule and played uh, UCLA at the end of the year. 
Um, our original scheduled game was earlier, but it was the UCLA Hall of Fame and Adam was getting inducted. So we flipped the game to the end of the season so that he could attend his ceremony. Um, and it was just a, you know, it was a weird game and and they couldn't do much right and we couldn't do much wrong. Uh, and you're just kind of sitting in your seat going, what, what is going on? <laughs> like th- this is, um, I mean, it's nice. You know, you get a little breathing room, um, but uh, it, it, it was just an anomaly. And then you're, as a coach, you have a different problem because you're trying to, you're, you need to make sure that your guys understand that this is not going to happen again. <laughs> right. Like there's no way this is happening again. And the next time we play them, it's just going to give them more motivation to, to prove that that was, a, that was an anomaly. Um, and certainly it was. Speaking of anomaly, can you? Uh, I've spoken to other coaches about the same subject. Twenty twenty one may be the first, you know, quote normal year in a, in a couple years. Is there something that you can speak about? Just can you now look back on this season and recognize, wow, that's actually kind of the way a NCAA season is supposed to have gone. Yeah, that the whole COVID and the shortened season, and it was tough on everybody. Um, you know, for us specifically we couldn't go to campus. We weren't allowed to train, you know, our first practice before the shortened spring or winter season was eight days before we played our first game. And so we hadn't been in the pool together for almost nine months. And then we jump in the water and we have to, you know, play UCLA, SC, Stanford twice in a weekend. It was, it was kind of absurd. And, and, uh, you know, we managed to get through that season. And, and I, I think that's the way to describe it. You, the competition was, was great. Um, the level of play was probably not as great. Um, but the competitive spirit of the athletes and the coaches was at the highest level. Everybody wanted to win. It was a weird environment. There wasn't anybody there. You had to manufacture your own, you know, bring your own juice and, and, um, and we had to play, but these guys battled each other when it ended. Um, you know, there was champions and everybody was as excited as they would normally be. There was also that relief of, we got through it because yeah. it was so stressful every single day. Um, you know, getting tested every single day, waiting for the kid to test positive every single day, the kid waiting to, I don't want to be the one to test positive every single day for, for two months. Um, you know, there was a picture that uh, Catherine Hain, who's a photographer that, that does a well lot known. of water polo photography. Yeah. yeah, she's great. She took a picture of Pinta and I after our semifinal loss to them. And that and and I just I, I love the picture because the look on both of our faces was just relief that for me, it was like, OK, you know, it was a great game and we lost and we beaten them five straight times. And that was my worry of, you know, it's really hard to beat somebody six times in a row. Um and and get the luck that it takes to keep beating them um and uh um but it was just you know it was such a hard season mentally for everybody that it just looked like both of us were exhausted and and you know it was one more day for him and we were we fell short but there was such a respect and i think um that's the one thing out of the covid that i think we we all came became fairly close because we had to figure out a way to make it work. Right. The world was telling us we couldn't make it work. 
Um, it was easy. The easy way was to not make it work. Um, and as I've said to him, we were all just stubborn enough to fight until the end to make it work. Whether it was just the four of us, then fine. But we need to do this because our kids need to play. Um, and uh, and so we we became closer and and uh, than we were. Um, and I think that has a benefit to the the teams again going into twenty one the the actual season. There's a there's a again a, a great respect for each other um, at the end of the day, and and we battle and battle and battle for an hour and a half. We want to kill each other and we want to go at it, and then the game's over, and it's like, all right, you know, we'll see you in a couple of weeks or or whatever. Um, uh, it was it 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 was the, that's the best thing that came out of that whole thing. Um, but it definitely was nice to have fans in the stands and parents to be able to go and the players to, to see it some normalcy, um, as we kind of navigated that season. I've got to find that photo. I, if I can find the photo that you're talking about, we'll post it on, uh, on the total water polo website. That sounds, it sounded almost like a, a relief and you could be forgiven for feeling that way. Right. I mean, nobody wants to end the season with, you know, a loss. You want to finish with a win but still so stressful that in some ways you can be forgiven for feeling relieved about that, I guess. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Coach Pete Catino, legendary. Like, and you're, by the way, you're, you're going to end your career as a legendary one as well. Here's this quote. Kirk has been an Olympian and All-American, but I believe he is now a better coach than he was as a player. This is in 2004 or prior to his death in 2004. So this is a long time ago. Correct. He's a very intense person who's always been a student of the game. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by you being a student? How, what did he observe of you, uh, about you, even at that age, that that made him say that you were a student of the game? Hmm. I wish he was around to ask. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I think I, I took it seriously. I, I loved the sport and, and I followed, you know, the best players. I followed the best teams. I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to, to be involved in the, in the junior team, uh, you know, system. And, and we were able back then it was odd years. So basically, you know, if you were born in 67, you had an advantage over the 68s and, uh, and then FINA changed the, and it was only junior worlds was 17 and under. And that was it. There was no, like every birth year gets a oh, championship, right. um, which actually probably works out better for the development of all the kids. But back then it was just that. And then when I was 17 and we went to worlds, that year they decided that juniors should be 19. And so they changed it. So we got to go again as a group mm. um, for the most part, most of the same team kind of just moved on. Um, so travel, getting to go overseas, getting to see these players, great players that would end up going to the Olympics and um, you know, in the, in the coming years and uh, was fantastic. And I just think I, I, I loved that part of it and learning from people finding guys that could do stuff that, that I hadn't thought of and, and, and try to emulate it and try to figure it out. And, um, you know, I often say that I, I'd never as a player and as a coach probably never have had a original thought. You just look <laughs> around, you take stuff from people, you steal it, you make it, you, you mold it into your personality and then you call it your own. Um, and, uh, but, but I liked doing that, watching people do stuff and then trying to, 
trying to figure out how they did it and emulate it and try to do it the best that I could. You uh, talked about Europe. I'd like to get into that a little bit. What, what when you are when it is said that you're a student of the game, it means you're a student of the game everywhere. And you just said that you followed the best players, the best teams. So that means both in the United States and Europe. Um, what is it that you think that you might have learned from your first experiences playing against Europeans and then coaching against Europeans? Yeah, I think. Um as a player was just, they were a little bit further ahead of us as far as development because of their system. And, and, and when you're younger, you were playing with older players constantly. Our, our system uh, then and now is, is more age-based uh, age group, you know? So, so the furthest you get over your skis is maybe a year, you know, I'm the bottom of my age group. I'm a year, uh, you know, I'm 15 and I'm playing against 16 year olds. Um, and, and overseas, you just see the development of these kids that they're, they're, they, if they're good at 16 and 17, they're playing with 25, 26, mm. 27, 30 year olds, whatever. Um, so their, their, uh, maturity as a player is a little bit further along than ours. And we're, we're playing catch up as far as getting those game experiences, getting, you know, to, to learn from setbacks and, not being able to do stuff, having to figure out the technique of how things work because you're not physically stronger than the guy guarding you. You're not, you know, as old or whatever. You're not as experienced and you need to rely on basics and technique and stuff to survive. Um, I think that was the biggest uh, eye-opener when we when we went over and, and started to see teams, you know, like the Spanish team uh, that ended up winning – the gold medal in 96. Uh, most of those are uh, probably half of that team was from the junior team that I first saw in 1987 or 85 when we went to worlds. Um, and, and they all, and, and a lot of them went to the Olympics in 1988, a year after we, you know, played them at junior worlds in 1987, all of a sudden they made a, a, a decision in Spain that they were hosting the Olympics in 92. And this team was very good. And they took five or six of these guys, you know, Gomez, Garcia, Royan, uh, Bayart, all these guys. And they took them and said, you're going to the Olympics in 1988 as 19-year-old kids. Yeah. Um, and they tied our U.S. team that won the silver medal. Now, they didn't win a medal, but they, they were playing at a level that, you know, boded well for future. Um, and, uh, and so – you know, as a player, you kind of look at that and go, all right, I can, I mean, we can, we competed against them and they're competing against this. So, you know, we can do it. It's just, we got to catch up and we got to work hard. And, um, and we don't have the ability to, to play in those leagues right now or in school, or whatever, but what can we do here to try to catch up? We've reached the end of the first half of our conversation today and we'll return in just a moment. All of Total Water Polo is brought to you advertising free, and we'd like to keep it that way. So we're asking for your help. Show your support by going to TotalWaterPolo.com forward slash give so we can continue to cover the sport we all love in the United States and beyond. Hi, this is Tony Azevedo, five-time Olympian, uh, and you are listening to the Total Water Polo Podcast. And now, part two of today's conversation.
Well, you've but you've had enormous success finding these players from overseas. And I, I, a couple of questions. I heard Luca Cupido on the All Access podcast. He he was raving about you because he there's a certain balance. I think that um, he was saying that you struck, which is there's a kind of style of American coaching, and then there's a but. You know, there are ways of incorporating European technique and so on. And he really found that to be um, very energizing for him. I'm paraphrasing, but that's sort of what he what he came up with. Um, in general, what does the and he's different because he came up through the Newport Harbor program. So it wasn't like you saw like, that you were recruiting him directly from from Europe. But how does that work um, for for athletes from Europe? Are they coming to you? Are you going to them? You find them on film? Are you looking at them on their national teams or their clubs? Is there sort of a general trend in the way that you find these really great players from overseas? There's a little bit of of word of mouth and um you know it's become more uh you know there's there's more kids that are looking as at this as an option than there were in 2002 when i started but um you know when i started my first year was 2002 my first recruiting class um was the first international kid that i got and it was it was an email from belgrade that you know, this kid was interested and it was video and you're looking at video and you're like, okay, um, there's talent there. Um, but it's video and you're not sure what you're getting. It could be anybody. It could not be the kid. He could send you whatever. So you're, I, you know, you have players that you used to play with, uh, Igor Milanovic was in Serbia at the time and, and, uh, and a couple other players that I knew that I could reach out to and say, all right, who, who is this kid? And, you know, uh, what's he like, what's his, you know, to get a, an idea. And then you have to spend a lot of time on the phone and try to get to know them and see what they're about. Um, and if they can, you know, handle it academically. Um, but I really didn't know what I didn't know at that point. Um, I knew that I could use a six, three lefty, <laughs> yeah. um, that sounded good. And he looked like he could shoot. And, um, and, uh, and I took a chance and, you know, the he'll his name was Andrea Vasilovich and uh, he'll tell you like, you know, I, his first practice, I, I, I don't think I really coached. I just sat and watched him hoping that I was, you know, I didn't get bamboozled <laughs> um, and that he was the kid that was on the video and, and then hoping he's a good kid and he's going to take it seriously and, and all of that. And he was kind of the test case of, of how to deal with it um, and understanding the different personalities. And, um, you know, they have a way in different places, they have a way that they do things. And it's a little bit different in the United States. Um, the, the dynamic of college is different. Um, but as a coach, I, I try to gauge what we do based on the personality and the, and the talent that we have, not just, this is how I'm not the smartest guy in the room. So I'm going to look around and go, okay, what, what do we do now? What do we do this year? And that's going to be different when you have a guy like Papa Nicolau at center or you don't. Um, it's going to be different between 2006 when we had John Mann and Brian Kinsel in at center and 2007 where we didn't have either of them. And you have Michael Scharf who scores 99 goals in a season. And, you know, and I, I joke with him. I'm like, the only guy that kept you under four goals a game was me because I kept <laughs> telling you not to shoot and throw the ball to John. Um, and that, you know, that 
that didn't go over well with a kid who could <laughs> score like that. But but that was the way I felt like was the best way we could win. Um, and then the next year it was, we don't have those guys anymore. So if you're not shooting six or seven times a game, then we're going to struggle. Go, you know, let's let's do this now because we don't have that. Um, and with players like Luca, it's um, you're you're dealing with a, a high level athlete that has great instincts of the game. Um, and I like to learn from them too. Like, what do you see in the game? What do you, what can we do that you see that might help? And at the end of the day, I got to make the decision of what we're going to do. But, but there are times when players have really good ideas and, and I like to listen to them and at least empower them to tell me what, what we're, what do we, what are you comfortable with and what can we do that might be successful? Cause you're seeing it from water level and I might be missing something. Um, I don't want to neglect the American players, uh, but I, I'm curious about the European because I think the recruiting process for those that are, uh, you know, American is actually a little bit more straightforward. So I, I just want to make sure that we're we're not neglecting them. It's just a matter of curiosity. Um, and just to round out the questions about Europe, if a top level club came looking for a coach. Is that even something that you would contemplate? And I, it's a it's a fantasy question because we have to set aside you have a job right now that it appears that you really like. But in sort of theory, is that even an appealing job for you? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, I lo- I love the international game and and uh, you know the national team system and and that kind of. Uh, level of water polo is, is fantastic. And I, I, I love the relationships that I was able to build over years of traveling over there. Um, uh, but you know, I, I was in the real world doing, you know, the, the startup software world in the, in the early late nineties and two thousands. And I left because of Cal and because of what that meant to me and because of Pete Catino and Steve Easton. And, um, and I was on the, I was on the, committee to pick a new coach and got talked into being a new coach. Um, and, uh, and I did it because of my passion for the, for the program. And, and, uh, and, you know, I don't see myself doing anything different, um, from a coaching standpoint. Um, I love it. I love the age group of the kids. They're, they're, you know, 18 to 22 year old boys are, are by far the dumbest, uh, Mm -hmm. people on earth. Yep. Um, but they're entertaining and, uh, you speak their language, they keep you young. Um, yeah, they, they keep you young and they, they keep you laughing and, and, and they keep you on your toes and you, you know, you're, you just hope you don't get that late night, you know, Friday night, <laughs> 2 AM phone call from somebody like, please don't ring, please don't ring. Yeah. And, uh, um, but you know, that, 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 that keeps you rolling and, uh, and they, you know, they just, their personalities are fantastic and. Uh, for good and for bad, I like I like personalities. So I tend to, you know, as one of my players a few years ago said, weird weird attracts weird, coach. Um, when I'm lamenting on how on earth can I be always getting into this, you know, with year after year, somebody's doing something like this. Explain this to me. And the kid goes, weird attracts weird, um, which I guess, you know, is part of it. So it's I get kids that have good personalities. I like that. Right. Yeah. I got no problems with that. Um, I think, uh, again, like I said, I want kids that have opinions. I want kids that, that, uh, that are comfortable with doing that. And I want to empower them to play the game moves, the game flows. 
you have to be able to make decisions on your own. And if you can't, then you get into situations where you struggle because the other team has a plan too. And they stop your, your one and two options. And if you don't have the guts to, you know, uh, you know, uh, Casabella throwing up the spin lob in the game. If you don't have the guts to do it because you're afraid that I'm going to kill you if you miss it, um, uh, then you miss that opportunity because it's there. There's a shot. Um, you just got to have the, the guts to pull it off and the skill. Yep. Um, but, but those two things a lot of times don't align. And, and uh, as a player, uh, I always felt like Pete gave me the opportunity to to take risks and do things that maybe other people wouldn't do. And, and to know that we would have a long conversation about, uh, you know, shot selection and timing and situations if I, if it didn't work, but, but he trusted me to make a, uh, a business decision at times <laughs> as to how to try to, you know, get the ball in the back of the net. And, um, uh, and I, I think I've kind of passed that on to these players as well. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit something parallel to all of this. So actually, I've just noticed in Austin that was just announced a couple days ago here that the University of Texas's offensive linemen are each going to get 50 grand, each one of them, for uh, this is the new NLI issue. Um, the you know likenesses, names, and images is what NIL stands stands for. Is that something you're concerned about with relation to water polo? And have you bumped into any of this for water polo athletes yet? Um, there's little things that, that some of the athletes have been able to procure as far as, you know, uh, relationships with companies and getting some product or, uh, but not a, not a tremendous amount. Um, I think as the smaller sports, it will be few and far between, and you'll have certain athletes that all of a sudden find a niche that they might be able to, uh, take advantage of. Um, but for me right now, I haven't, um, seen it hasn't become a major distraction. It really doesn't seem to have become a major distraction, even at the the highest levels of, of football and, you know, and, and uh, as far as what I've seen, I don't know, time will tell when you get that many kids, you know, getting pulled in different directions as to their brand and their uh, you know, what they can get out of it uh, more power to them. Um, if they can, you know uh, if they can, garner that kind of attention and and do that we'll run into it eventually you're going to get kids like you know Hannes or or luca or tony or you know that that are able to go to olympic games prior to finishing college and that can all open up uh some opportunities for you um that that aren't you know open for other players so um we'll see it eventually um at a bigger level than I've seen it so far, but it's pretty new and everybody's just kind of trying to figure out, you know, who and how and, and, uh, and at what extent, uh, they can, you know, uh, take advantage of that. Um, in, in a similar way, there are some par parallels. I mean, the, the cost structure is completely different, but between water polo and, uh, soccer football, it, do you envision a time when you're going to have to actually part of your recruiting of an athlete is going to be say what we can offer you at here at Cal is more lucrative for you than it would be to go say play overseas professionally at a younger age. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I it's possible, I guess. Um, uh, but I think in general, I, I would say, you know, for a lot of these kids, that is a conversation that you have already that, that, you know, even at the highest levels, you know, what are you making as a professional water polo player is X and it's good. And you, it, it's, it's really good if you're, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, but at some point you have to stop and uh, not that many people, if anybody are making money at the professional water polo level, that's going to be, I'm done with playing water polo. I don't have to do something else. Right. Um, I think everybody has to do something else. You're 35 when you, if you, if you have the long, a super long career, you might be 35 still, you know, making a good salary for X, Y, Z club and playing on the national team, or at that point, probably transition from the national team. your last couple of years in European club, um, but you're 35 years old. So, you know, what are you gonna do for the next 40, 45 years? Um, you, you haven't pocketed enough money to, to just sit on the beach in, in Barcelona or, or, you know, uh, and, and do nothing. So, um, your ability to get a college education and then you can make those choices. I can play for a while, but I have something to go back on. I can play for as long as I want, but I have something to go back on, or I have something to build while I'm, doing this and you know i think it's it's important for the international kids to hear that um and there's options for them to go back in and they're becoming you know it's it's not very it's not uh common but becoming an olympian's not common so you know but there are players that you know croatia uh, you know american college player lovre milos uc irvine you know, he made the Croatian Olympic team and he played college in the United States. This is not an easy task. Um, you know, uh, Alexis Saponic from Cal that made the Serbian Olympic team um, Jenna while he was in college. Yep. Jenna Dunias, uh, Balas Ederli. Ederli yep. um, so we, it is possible. It is not easy. Um, and you have to be an exceptional athlete to do it. Um, but that's normal. You have to be an exceptional athlete to become an Olympian at the highest level. Um, but kids are seeing that it's possible. It might be a longer track. You know, if Luca would have wanted to go back to Italy, I, I'm fairly confident that he would have found a way to make the Italian Olympic team. If he would have gone back and decided, I'm going to go back there. He wanted to stay here. Um, and he had U.S. citizenship already, so he could make a choice there. Um, so it's possible, um, to do that. You just might have to go over there and pay your dues a little bit like Jenna Dunias. He went over there and played two or three years in the club system. And at some point you, you know, the coaches have to see the quality and go, you know, I, I want to win and this guy can help me win. And so do I want to be right? Or, you know, or do I want to, you know, or do I want to have the best team? You know, and he left to go to the U.S., but who cares? Um, uh, and I think that's becoming more normal. If you're good enough, they're going to they're going to they're going to come find you. Um, and if you're not, you're not. Uh, and so I, I think that's important to, to tell them that they have that option. And for our kids as well, like you, you know, you're you're developing something so that you can advance yourself athletically and intellectually and you can still do it you can go to the olympics and 
and become an MD and do all these things. You just, it might take a few more years, but you'll get there um, if you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, then you weren't going to make it anyways, in my opinion. So um, it's just harder, but I can show you guys, I can show you, you know, Schroeder that becoming a chiropractor while he was becoming an Olympian multiple times, it just, it, that was hard. And he went to school and then practice and then school and practice and lab and then practice. And, uh, you know, we all saw it. And because he had a goal of this is what I want to do on this side of my world. And this is what I want to do on this side of my world. And I'm not going to settle. It's just going to, I have to give up something and it's going to take a little bit of time. Okay. No problem. Um, making, making our kids understand that uh, I think is important for all of us as coaches to the importance of, of trying to strive for that. If that's something you want to do, because at the end of the day, uh, everything in the business world, I think most of the people you talk to, they've done everything that you're sitting at a table across from them, telling them that you, you, you've done at a young age. The one thing none of them have done is gone to the Olympics. And so in that interview, they're going to talk to you about that more than they're going to talk to you about any of this other stuff that you did. Um, but you've got to be willing to sacrifice to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and understand the importance of it. For me, it's like, it's, it's the, it's, it's the epitome of what you can do. Um, and it's important and you'll, I think you'll regret it 30 years from now when you realize I could have done that if I just would have been willing to sacrifice a little bit more. Um, and you're not going to get it back. Once you, you know, you walk, you're, you're not getting it back. And, and, uh, and we're not 25, 26, 27, 28, 30, 31 forever. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's super important. You're finding, I, I suspect that it's not a terribly hard sell when you find somebody who's uh, interested in getting an education. Yes, we can help you with an education from the University of California, Berkeley. This is going to set you up for the rest of your life. So th it's a it's a very fortunate situation to, to be to be in, I would imagine. Um, I wanted to go do a little reminiscing. Um, can I assume that 2006 championship, which is still legendary, that YouTube video keeps popping up on me randomly. Is the is that last second shot winning game? Is is are your memories as fond of that outcome as it seems to be popular online? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was the you know the I started in 2002 and, and, you know, you, we lost in the final my first year uh, to Tony and Stanford and, and then we just didn't make it back. And that team, you know, we, it was all of my first recruits and they were seniors or they redshirted. We had a huge class, my first recruiting class and half of them redshirted and half of them didn't. Uh, and so, you know, that there were a bunch of seniors that that was their last shot at it. And, uh, and we had lost SC pretty consistently for a while. Mm. And um, to beat them, we beat them in the conference tournament final and then beat them like two weeks later or a week later at NC2As in, in dramatic fashion. And, you know, Jeff, who took that shot, right. uh, was is my assistant coach now. Um, and, uh, and I got ejected from the game in the middle of the fourth quarter when John Mann took his third foul. And so I was sitting over by Terry Schroeder, um, you know, Terry was my personal seatbelt, keeping me out of trouble in the corner while he was watching the game. And, um, which was good. You know, you get a big, big guy that I respect to just holding me back and saying, just calm down, Kirk, calm down. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, like I said, you need a little luck, like, you know, the, uh, Thomas Hale scored with, you know, 0.0, whatever it was on the clock, just enough to get a shot off. And, and, uh, my assistant coach Boyd modified a little play that we do right in front of the cage to do it from, you know, 11 meters and, and, uh, a kid from SC, sprinted back just in time to tip the ball like he you know if he would have stayed where he was probably mm -hmm. doesn't happen but he he came sprinting back um to you know block the cage and as he spun the ball was coming and he got his hand up and tipped it and you know jeff jeff throws the ball hard enough to if you're too close to the cage you know it's it's going to go in that that definitely formed my opinions of last second shots and not getting anywhere near the goal um <laughs> you know, telling my guys that you're, you know, go to eight meters, no closer. If, if you tip the ball, I don't want it to be able to get to the cage. Like, you know, you tip it at eight meters, it's not getting, it's not going in the goal. It's going somewhere else. So you go, you go to three meters and deflections are going where they're going. And um, so, yeah, it was a special moment, obviously the first championship as a coach. Um, and again, the, the elation of players that worked really hard and, battled demons and found ways to work together and um uh is 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 special because every team's a little different they all have their own little problems and um their own issues that they got to fight through as young men and and find a way to come together uh and you know create a memory that they'll have forever um which is which is great it's a it's a cinematic ending i mean that's this, this is the cliched story is the last second shot it actually goes in and so i'm curious you know you have terry schroeder is basically leaning on you to make sure you don't jump out of your suit here um but you're fuming like you're and so is there when the shot goes in can you even remember what you were thinking because that just it's it's impossible like that cannot happen and yet it just did yeah i think i i mean I was in the pool pretty quick, um, you know, just uh, you get get in before they take it back and, and they change their mind. Uh, so I might have been the first guy in the pool uh, uh, from the other side of the pool swimming towards the bench. And um, yeah, I was uh, yeah, I was fairly hot for for a while there. And um, uh, I didn't handle that the best way possible. But um, but, you know, it was like you said, it was a great fairy tale ending of you know sport and you know chucking it up or you know uh the nc state you yep. know houston air ball to the you know the, those games that we that we watched as kids or you know in our formative years that that ended on something just completely crazy you know the 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 holy roller oakland raiders game where you're just kind of staring going wait a minute that's impossible yeah um or the or the bad ones, you know. The, the I'm a Raider fan, so the Tuck Me rule. Um, Tuck, uh, oh, I, don't I, even. I oh, a, that's a painful memory. Please, uh, I, I almost broke. I almost broke my TV. Um, I've gotten around to dealing with Brady at this point, but at that <laughs> for a long time, I blamed him for that stupid rule. Yep. Um, but uh, um, you know things like that where are like you'll never forget it, and and. And you look back on things. I, I love the best part of that play is the photo. There again, there was another photo of it. There's it's John Mann with his hands up on the on the platform where the referees stood. But just the 
the looks on the people's faces in the stands mm. um, is awesome. Priceless, you know, and 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 just bewilderment, or and it's it's fun, you know, it's fun to look at the outside of it of just what people are thinking and people you know and. Um, my parents were passed away, but they were there. And, um, my dad's a, a, a domer. He went to Notre Dame. So, um, he, he taught me a, a healthy dislike for SC at a young age. Um, uh, not from a Cal perspective, but from a Notre Dame perspective. And, and so, uh, yeah, he had to get told once during that game to sit down by our athletic director. Cause he was waving his dollar bill at the band. <laughs> Um, you know, the normal Notre Dame stuff and our athletic directors like Phil, come on. And, you know, my dad's gray haired, you know, nice man, but it's SC. And, um, and with all the faces after it, my dad has got his hands in his pockets and he's just walking off the deck, like no emotion, but it's over. See ya. We're out of here. Satisfied. Oh, and that was that was perfect. Like he just, all right, we're gone. Yep. <laughs> Thanks very so, much. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> um, just to uh, circle back, I probably should have prefaced all of this by saying, go on YouTube, find the 2006 final. This is a shot that took place with less than two seconds left on the clock, right? You can imagine an after goal play that looked like that. And so for those who are very listening cool. to this, go back and check that out. You get, there's even interviews with Jeff and with other players on that team about how that went. But it is uh, it is one that stands out in the history of uh, NCAA water polo finals. And with that, I want to thank you very much for your time, Kirk. So uh, congratulations on another great year and obviously on your career. And I do appreciate your time. All right, I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today. We'll return soon with more of the Total Water Polo Podcast, but thank you for listening and telling a friend about us. And of course, subscribe and do all that podcasty stuff on most of the biggest uh, distribution channels. Also, go to totalwaterpolo.com forward slash give to help us remain advertising free. And while you're there, go check out our collection of Total Water Polo and TX Water Polo goodies by clicking gear at the top of the menu. Until next time, so long from Austin, Texas. This has been a production of TWP Sports LLC.